I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT Another mini-bond launches, but should you put your money in them? How to build your own house? And what's to become of the cooperative bank? I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Tanya Poli. Hello. And Elaine Moore. Hello. Plus our special guest, Adrian Lowcock of Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hello. This week, a jockey club investment bond to raise money for the refurbishment of Cheltenham Racecourse closed its books. No sooner had it done so than another one opened. Nuffield Health, a not-for-profit operator of gyms and health clubs, said it plans to raise £15 million via a similar issue. These instruments are known as mini-bonds, and according to a report out this week, the market for them could be worth as much as a billion pounds by the end of this year, and £8 billion by the end of 2017. Mini-bonds have been issued by smaller companies, but recently issuers have tended to be large companies with trusted brand names. The Saintly John Lewis Partnership, for instance, issued one last year. They tend to pay better rates of interest than savings accounts and fixed-rate savings bonds, but not every bond thinks investors should be buying them. Critics say they're inflexible, carry substantial risks and aren't eligible for popular tax wrappers like ICES. I'm joined now by Adrian Lowcock, Senior Investment Manager at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Adrian, the word bond seems to be used interchangeably these days to describe a whole range of uh, financial investments, savings bonds, retail bonds, mini bonds and so on. Can you tell us which is which? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. Uh, there's a sort of a whole different range of bonds. So, I mean, to cover off the sort of basics, you've got a range of savings bonds, which could be fixed savings bonds, uh, income bonds, uh, and they all relate to cash investments. But then you've got other, other things like insurance bonds, which are issued by insurance policies uh, or insurance companies, uh, and uh, they can sort of provide an investment return, but they can also be called income bonds and, uh, and, and other names. So you get a bit of a crossover there. And then the final sort of area is perhaps a little bit more familiar in our universe, which is the, the government bonds and the corporate bonds and also high-yield bonds, which are all basically forms of debt issued by uh, governments and companies to effectively their borrowing money uh, of uh, investors. Now, retail bonds are bonds like those that are issued in small denominations that's that's the basic difference isn't it and and they're 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 either traded on the london stock exchanges platform or they're not as is the case with the nuffield issue 
Yes, that's absolutely it. I mean, basically, if you look at traditional corporate bonds, they issued in sizes that just aren't um, suitable for uh, individual investors. You know, sort of minimum investments of fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or even more. Uh, so retail bonds uh, issue in a size that can be traded that uh, is much more palatable for individual investors, uh, and retail bonds do cover both listed and unlisted uh, bonds. So those that are available on the London Stock Exchange and can be traded, and those such as these mini-bonds that uh, are issued directly by the company and aren't tradable. Now, you're fairly sceptical of uh, mini-bonds, I think it's fair to say. What are your main objections to them? Um, my biggest concern is that um, sort of being associated with this term, the retail bond, it makes them look more suitable for individual investors than, than, than perhaps they are. And my biggest concern is um, what individual investors need is a secondary market that can provide liquidity uh, and also a secondary market that allows uh, sort of clear, clear evaluation of the investment so you can actually understand whether or not uh, the product is actually sort of worth what it may be worth. Um, so there's very little research analysis that goes on in, into valuing the bond for for individual investors. Um, whereas on on the listed market and in the corporate bond market, you know, you have credit rating agencies that value these bonds and, and, and give them a, a, a sort of risk rating, if you like. Uh, and and uh, you can then sort of ascertain what level of risk you want to take. You have to do all this work yourself, and you have no way of exiting the investment if, if you buy it because you have to wait to maturity. You can't just trade it. But these uh, investments are clearly popular if this, if this survey is correct, so this market's going to be worth a lot by the end of this year. Um, and investors in a yield-starved world are chasing returns uh, anywhere and everywhere. What would you suggest they do instead if they're not going to invest in, in products such as these? Well, I think the first thing to do is, is, is look at what is out there because um, one of the key issues with these mini-bonds is they may not be available inside a, a tax wrapper like an ISA. Um, so you need to make sure when you're comparing the investment, you do it at a similar level. Uh, so you take in the tax advantage of the, of the ISA wrapper and corporate bond funds, uh, the income inside an ISA is uh, completely tax free. So you can get something like a, a strategic bond fund yielding in the region of about 5.4%, but that is a tax free yield. Um, so it, it, if you take into account the effects of tax, that's actually quite attractive. Uh, and I think if you're looking for income, uh, make sure you, you, you diversify your income stream. So, you know, you can get some equity income funds yielding just over 4%. Uh, and, you know, there are different risks attached to these these investments. But that that's sort of the point. These, these mini bonds aren't risk-free either. Um, so you need to sort of look at comparable investments. And, you know, I think personally it's actually worth paying an expert investor, an expert fund manager, to do the research on corporate bonds uh, on my behalf because it's a, it's a complex market. When you talk about risks, uh, on the programme last week we were talking about Warren Buffett's um, comments on, on the bond market generally and he was saying that bonds are a, are a terrible investment at current prices. Um, is it really, are bond funds really as, as, as risk-free as, as we might like to think they are in that context? I, I think it's very important to sort of flag up that bonds uh, are, as an investment are not risk-free, nor are mini-bonds. Uh, and, and when you look at sort of investments and you just sort of say bonds, I mean, one of the areas that doesn't look particularly attractive investment for investors at the moment is, is government bonds, gilts that are issued by the government. They're yielding, uh, paying interest payments that are below inflation. So longer term, you're guaranteed to lose money in real terms. So they're particularly unattractive at the moment. Corporate bonds do come with a risk. And there's been a lot of sort of talk about this great rotation out of bonds into equities. But whilst you've got 
sort of very low uh, interest rates, uh, very low returns on cash, you're going to get investors willing to hold those investments perhaps for a bit longer than they would normally and at these sort of relatively low levels of yield. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced that there'll be this great rotation as quickly as people may think. It may take a while before the, the world gets back to normal. Um, but yes, there are risks. And, and I think that's the important thing when looking at any of these investments is understanding the risks that are attached. You can lose your capital money. You can, of course, make money as well in, in, in terms of capital. Indeed. Thank you very much, Adrian. You can read my verdicts on the mini-bond craze in this week's Serious Money column in your regular FT Money. FT Money is available on both Saturday and Sunday as part of FT Weekend via the FT's various tablet apps, on Kindle and online at www.ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave comments, you can do so at the foot of articles online or you can email us. The address is money at ft.com. Still to come on the show, what is to become of the cooperative bank, once touted as a key challenger in the world of UK banking? But first, let's take a look at self-build. That very term probably conjures up a certain image, an idealistic and well-off couple, perhaps in late middle age, appearing on Channel 4's grand designs and building their eco-friendly dream home from traditional materials. It's true that self-build is currently a niche activity, Britons build far fewer of their own homes than our continental cousins. Just 7.6% of new supply last year was self-built. Compare that to Hungary, where over half of new homes are self-built, or France, where the proportion is 38%. But the government, desperate to get new homes built, has big plans for self-builders. It wants to double the number of self-built houses constructed each year. And last week was the inaugural National Self-Build Week. Tanya Poli has been investigating the world of self-building. Tanya, first of all, why are we so rubbish at self-build, especially given that the quality of many new houses here is so dubious and the demand for them is so high? I think there's three main points to make, really. I mean, firstly, the lack of access to, to land. It's still very hard to actually buy a building plot. Um, and until that becomes easier, self-build is going to become going to remain quite a niche uh, market. Um, secondly, sort of the red tape, all the kind of planning permission that's involved, and the amount of money that you need to kind of um, you spend to actually meet all those all that red tape regulation, um, and also access to finance. Um, a lot of self-builders uh, find problems with actually getting uh, sort of mortgages for self-build properties. You know, they first of all have to find, get a loan to actually buy the land itself, and then they have to also get another loan to actually build the property. And there's not actually that many lenders um, willing to sort of offer those type of loans at the moment. So the government is um, offering help in lots of other parts of the housing market. What help is on offer for self-builders? Well, they are doing quite a bit actually at the moment. So back in 2011, they sort of launched this um, focus on the self-build market as part of their big housing strategy um, for the UK. Um, At the time, they kind of announced, uh, like you said, that they want to sort of double the amount of self-builders over the next decade. Um, They've actually launched a quite a very good sort of practical website called um, the sort of self-build portal, which actually provides useful practical information. You can go on there, sort of look at what kind of costs involved and actually building your own property um whether you're likely to get um you know how much choice there is in land in that area that you're looking to buy sort of thing um so it's actually quite it's worth it's very useful and it's quite um 
definitely worth a look if you're if you're thinking about going down that route. Um, the other main thing that they've actually done is actually launched this um, last year. They launched a thirty million fund to try and provide kind of short term loans for for group schemes. So this is kind of aimed at kind of bigger projects um, and kind of to encourage maybe to encourage the lending market to sort of see how easy it is to provide um, you know loans to these group schemes. Um, and actually, apparently about half of the half of that fund is already kind of earmarked for future schemes. So actually, it's you know it's been less than a year since it's launched, and it's already seems to have had quite a lot of um, demand. Um, and lastly, they're actually the government's kind of pushing local authorities to allocate um, portions of their land for self-built projects as well, which is quite a big move. Okay. Now you've been talking to lots of individuals and organisations this week. What are their top tips for for self-building? Where should you start? I think really be realistic about it as well. Like you mentioned earlier, there is this kind of um, idea, a lot of people have this kind of great big ambition to build their own dream home by the time they sort of retire. And they obviously have all these like big modern um, innovations that they want to do. But actually, it takes a long, long time to build your own home. I was speaking to Ted Stevens, who's um, the chair of the National Self-Build Association earlier this week. And he said, on average, it takes sometimes about sort of three to five years to actually find the plot of land. And then you've got a further year to maybe actually get all the planning permission done. And then on top of that, you've got another year to actually build the house. So it's a long term project. It's not something you can do very easily at the moment. Um, the other thing is actually, you know, you need to re- really do your research. Um, you know, you need to actually do the legwork to actually go out there, try and find a, um, a plot of land before it actually goes on the sort of open market uh, which might require actually sort of walking around your neighborhood quite a bit and sort of seeing if there's any um, places that could sort of um, work for your property also really bear in mind that you might need this sort of 10% contingency fund you know you've really got to be realistic about your costs realize that things can go wrong it's not all smooth flowing and lastly think about what your I know this sounds very sort of um you know, small small beans, but actually think about where you actually live um, in that meantime between actually building your home. And a lot of people actually live in caravans. I spoke to this young couple who said, you know, when they first thought about it, they thought it'd be great fun. It'd be like camping. And after the first three weeks, it was just awful. They hated it. So it's kind of think about those practical side of things. Okay. And finally, what would have to happen in this country for self-build to become really popular for us to get towards those sort of French Scandinavian levels of supply? I think uh, the market just has to change significantly for that to ever happen. I mean, there has to be a bigger focus on group schemes um, and there has to be a bigger focus on actually making it affordable for first-time buyers and people on lower incomes because at the moment you do need big deposits to actually um, get a mortgage on uh, a self-built property. Um, you do That's why it tends to be um, for sort of older affluent people at the moment because they've got those the equity built up in their current home or they've got the savings to actually be able to fund um, their self-built property. So really it just needs to be opened up to bigger schemes and with group schemes, they often can sort of save the costs. From I think you can usually reduce the amount of costs by about up to 40% by sort of joining with other people. Um, so it really does seem to be the way forward. Okay, thank you very much, Tanya. Self-building is our cover feature in this week's FT Money. We've got lots more hints and advice, plus some case studies of ordinary folk who've built their own homes and lived to tell the tale. We also go into more detail about those group schemes and how clubbing together can make self-build much more affordable. We'd also like to hear your views. You can get in touch via our website at ft.com forward slash money or email us direct the address once again, money at ft.com. Finally, the Cooperative Bank hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons late last weekend when a leading credit rating agency downgraded its debt by a savage six grades. But what really got people worried was the suggestion quickly denied by the bank, that it might be forced to seek state aid. 
Since then, there have been more rumours about its future, including one that the Bank of England is influencing the choice of its new chief executive following the resignation of Barry Tootle. The core problem is that the co-op doesn't have enough capital. That's why it was unable to proceed with the acquisition of 600-odd branches from Lloyd's, and it was also a big reason for the Moody's downgrade. But how, if at all, does that affect ordinary account holders and investors in its debt securities? And what does the future hold for a bank that many thought would go on to seriously challenge the big four? Elaine Moore can explain all. Elaine, how did the co-op end up in such a pickle, seemingly without anyone realising? Yeah, it's a really serious fall from grace, isn't it? As you mentioned, the co-op was in line to buy more than 600 branches of Lloyd's Banking Group. These were the branches that we've spoken of before in this podcast that Lloyd's had to sell um, under competition rules because it's, it's just too huge now. So the co-op was being um, sort of trumpeted as a really good option as a buyer. The Treasury was for it, or MPs, government seemed to be for it. What they wanted was for the co-op to be a challenger to the UK's um, big, giant, high street banks. And of course, the co-op is a mutual, it's ethical, it has that kind of soft glow around it. It's supposedly, a, you know, sort of a nice bank as opposed to the nasty big high street banks. And then it all collapsed last week. And uh, there had been sort of a few warnings about this. You know, the, the FT had written a story saying that Co-op Bank faced this capital hole of, of £1 billion. That has since been changed. The Barclays is now saying it could be £1.8 billion. This is obviously a really, really large amount of money. So the plans for Co-op purchasing the Lloyds Bank branches fell through. And then we had this Moody's downgrade, a really, really savage downgrade of six notches. What it takes uh, co-op's credit worthiness down to is basically junk status. OK, and lots of people are saying this goes back to the to the to the Britannia deal, wasn't it? When that was that was what, 2009? 2009. It's all changed at the co-op now. So the last chief executive of co-op group has has gone and there's a new guy in. Um, as you said, the chief executive of co-op bank has also gone but the last chief executive is peter marks basically was empire building so co-op group went into all kinds of areas so funeral homes it was going into it did a travel venture with thomas cook it was it bought up summerfield so it had a huge number of um, supermarket branches and it it did a merger or a takeover of Britannia in 2009 and that tripled its its bank branches in the UK. If it had bought uh, Lloyd's, it would have become the fifth biggest uh, bank. Store. So it, it was just growing enormously. Um, but oh, Britannia it was taking on lots of bad debts. The, the strange thing and the thing that people are now trying to work out is why that was 2009. Why is it 2013 that, that's, that this kind of capital hole is now coming to light? Why was that such a long time? I'm sure we'll get to the answer uh, pretty soon. Now to the practicalities, though. If you've got an account at the co-op, is your money at any risk at all? Well, the co-op were very quick to come out last Friday and say, don't worry, to all of their customers. Um, we've never sought government help. We're not seeking government help. That was their message that they were tweeting on Friday morning. Uh, if you have an account, if you have savings with co-op or Smile, which is the co-op the co bank online service, um, you are covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. So £85,000 is covered. Um, that's the, If you have accounts of both, it's, it's only covered once. We should make that clear. You And if you have accounts of Britannia as well, that's also covered once. This is all the complication of the FSCS rules. But you you are covered. So if, if the co-op collapses, that much money is secure under that scheme. Um, 
it depends what you think is going to happen to the co-op, whether you whether you want to move your money or not. But they're saying that they didn't see a significant withdrawals from customers in the last week. So they say that they think their customers aren't too worried. OK, so this isn't another Northern Rock. Now, as you mentioned, the, the co-op group is a is a sprawling uh, empire, if you like. They, they operate funeral plans, uh, insurance, travel, financial advice. If you have um, business relationships with any of those bits of the co-op are, are, are they likely to be affected are they going to see any effect again the co-op group says don't worry and and it's saying that its customers aren't worried it just depends on how big this capital hole is and at the moment the co-op is in talks with the um the the new financial regulator to work out how it's going to fill this hole in so it's selling off some assets it's already sold off some it's going to sell off some more um it depends whether you think that co-op group will be called in to to prop up to to fill this hole for co-op bank if co-op group has to do that that could have a knock-on effect for customers it couldn't have an effect and what happens to the group might sell off some other bits of it might decide that having funerals and travel and food and banks is is not the best way forward um if the hole is so big that it then requires a government bail-in and the government doesn't want to bail-in, it could have another knock-on effect. OK, but we're still a long way away from that, it must be stressed. Finally, the co-op isn't quoted on the stock market like, say, Barclays or Lloyds, but many investors do own its PIBs and preference shares, whose prices, of course, have taken a beating as a result of this uh, news. What's the advice been to, to investors and holders of those instruments? Is it, is it a don't panic message? Well, it's it's pretty dramatic what's happened to those. So <clears throat> the yields have gone shot right up. Uh, the prices have come right down. The the kind of the what's happening behind the scenes on this is the idea that bondholders are worried that they could be bailed in to help. So so as I said before, there's this huge chain of events that could happen. So bank has to sell off assets. If the co-op group then has to come in and, and help out, if the co-op group can't fill in the hole, then the government might be called on. If the government says no, maybe bondholders could be called on. And in that case, they would actually lose money. So that's a, it's a dramatic ending, but it's it's possibility. And the fact that these are being sold off means that some bondholders think that that's, that could happen at some point. Um, but some people have been saying to me today that this could be a buying opportunity because the, the fall in price is so dramatic and we don't really know what's going to happen to co-op yet. And we do know that, you know, the, the regulator and there's a lot of goodwill behind building societies and mutuals. You know, there is no kind of will to see them collapse so if they are able to work out a deal and if they can sort out this capital hold then perhaps prices could shoot back up again so maybe you buy now okay thank you very much elaine we have a full q a about the co-op in this week's money and the ft's retail banking team's extensive reporting on its troubles is all available on ft.com we will of course keep a close eye on the situation there although as i said earlier there's so far no suggestion at all that anyone's capital is at risk other highlights in this week's edition nick train the manager of the very successful finsbury growth and income trust ponders whether defensive blue chip shares like unilever and diageo are now overvalued Merrin Somerset Webb looks at how the structure of the funds industry puts its managers at a disadvantage, but gives individual investors a leg up. We've got the latest on Harlequin Property, the developer of Caribbean resorts that some people think is in deep financial trouble. And Roger Saul, the founder of posh handbags group Mulberry, explains how he made his money and why he's now one of the biggest UK producers of spelt. Don't forget, you can read us online at any time, www.ft.com slash money. You can email us at money at ft.com or you can follow us on Twitter. The handle is just ftmoney. 
But until next week, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Tanya, Elaine, and our special guest, Adrian Lowcock, at Hargreaves Lansdowne. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.